Welcome to In Search of Wisdom, a podcast by the Perennial Leader Project. On today's episode, my guest is Chris Fisher, the host of the Stoicism on Fire podcast and the creator of traditionalstoicism.com. Chris is the lead faculty member at the College of Stoic Philosophers, an institution dedicated to traditional Stoicism. In the conversation, Chris and I discuss the search for Stoic wisdom, traditional Stoicism, the need for responsibility, how worldviews shape our actions, wisdom and daily life, and so much more. Without any further delay, I now bring you the wise and gracious Chris Fisher. Chris, welcome to In Search of Wisdom. Thanks so much for coming on. Thank you for having me, Joshua. I've been looking forward to it as we were chatting about before I hit record here. I've heard you on a a number of podcasts recently on my friend Brandon Tumlin's podcast, The Strong Stoic, and I really enjoyed the the conversation. And since then, I've, I've checked out your podcast, Stoicism on Fire, as well as your website, Traditional Stoicism. And I've really enjoyed it. I'm curious as a as a first question, how and why did this all begin for you? It began back in 2011. I I had left a career in high technology at the uh, shortly after the turn of the millennium and moved to Florida with the intention of going back into public service. And in 2006, I became a law enforcement officer, which was you know, completely different than my, my high-tech uh, job. Uh, and by 2011, uh, the, the job was, you know, the, what, what you encounter in that world was starting to take a, a toll on me. And uh, both, you know, it, made, it was very curious because I'd seen, or I was seeing a side of human behavior, human psychology that, you know, the average person isn't exposed to on a daily basis. You may see it on the news, but you don't see it up close and personal. And so I was fascinated by that and, and you know, started reading more in psychology, cognitive psychology, evolutionary psychology, just to try to understand what it was that I was seeing. But And, and then uh, also to deal with just how what I was seeing was affecting me. You know, I, I've repeatedly said, uh, quoted Nietzsche, Nietzsche he argues that when you look into the abyss, the abyss also stares back at you. And when you're fighting monsters, you have to be careful not to become one. And that's a struggle that I think everybody in the world of law enforcement and in the military too, you you deal with. You know, How do I deal with the, the day-to-day realities of my job and not be psychologically overwhelmed by it, not be psychologically harmed? Well, ultimately, I came across a book by Jonathan Haidt titled um, Happiness. And he just makes a kind of a cursory reference to stoicism in there, which piqued my curiosity. And so I started doing, I picked up uh, uh, William Irvine's book, uh, The Good Life, and then read uh, uh, Becker's book, A New Stoicism, and was interested enough to pursue it further. I started doing some research on the web, found the College of Stoic Philosophers, and saw that they had a, a course, and I signed up. And that was that was in 2011, and that was the beginning. 
I love it. You mentioned uh, Jonathan Haidt's book. Was that The Happiness Hypothesis? Yes. Does that sound right? Yes, The Happiness Hypothesis. Such a such a great book that I, I I rank that up there in the happiness books. That might be number one on the, on the list. Now, many people, when it comes to stoicism or anything, they might read a book, read an article. You mentioned a a few there, and be content. But you didn't necessarily stop there. It seems like this search and this deeper understanding of of stoicism is is still going. Why why is that? Well, I think probably ultimately because it, it, um, I don't know why I say it inspired me and forced me, whatever it, it, it created a, you know, a bit of cognitive dissonance, which ended up, uh, in a change of worldview for me. I came to stoicism as a pretty, I would say an avowed or, uh, atheist. I had had some exposure to Christianity as a young man and wanted, you know, nothing to do with it. But, um, when, when I found Stoicism, the the beginning course, the Stoic Essential Studies course at the college, provided me with enough to uh, just wet the palate. Okay, I really want to know more, and that's when I entered the year long Marcus Aurelius program, and that's where my worldview was challenged. And and by that I mean, you know, the the Stoics uh, certainly were not atheists; they weren't even ag- agnostics. They were very you know, deeply spiritual slash you know religious characters, not religion in the modern sense, but. Uh, deeply spiritual in the sense that they had a a connection and, and uh, between their own life and what they considered to be a divine and providentially ordered cosmos. And my the more I read, the more my resistance to that was overcome to a point where about halfway through the course, you know, I the Marcus Aurelius course, I came to the conclusion that. You know, either while I'd, I'd read Becker and I'd read Irvine, you know, Irvine, I believe, is an agnostic. Becker is openly atheist and, and was intending to create an atheistic version of Stoicism, a new synthesis. And while that appealed to me, it, I couldn't, um, I couldn't find any consistency with that and what I was reading in the Stoic texts and in the, in the, in the really good scholarship on the text, you know, by people like Anthony Long and David Sedley and John Cooper and, and uh, Brad Inwood, you know, they all made it very clear that this concept of a providentially ordered cosmos was a fundamental and essential part of Stoicism. So I reached a point where I realized, okay, I, either I'm going to have to walk away from Stoicism because I, I wanted to remain consistent, or I'm going to have to find a way to uh, assent to this this idea and see if this would make sense to me. And ultimately, it did, and it changed my entire view of you know, my life, my past. Uh, everything everything changed because it's a worldview change. Mm. And so, you know, that was the impetus for me wanting to create the traditional stoicism uh, blog and ultimately the podcast because you know most of the most of the podcast the material that's out there comes from a, a modern more agnostic uh, perspective and a, a, there was the, the community that wanted uh, the the deep spirituality that exists in stoicism was an underserved community so yeah that is uh, that is something that through my own, educational process, my own training process, you know, it's just my opportunity to, to, uh, to give that back to the community as I've, as I've learned. I'm certainly not a scholar. I don't read Greek. I don't read Latin. Uh, I depend upon 
the scholars. Um, I depend upon the, the credible scholarship to tell me what scholar, uh, what stoicism is. And that's what I've done. Let me ask uh, a curiosity question. If, if I could, Chris, as you mentioned there, it, it ultimately made, made sense to use stoicism as, as, as it traditionally was to the stoics. And then for some, there's maybe this thing of where you, you set a portion of it uh, aside. Why do you think for you it ultimately made sense to you know adopt stoicism completely and then you know spread spread the word as you've said um, you know of, of traditional stoicism, maybe this underserved community? Well, for me the again, the idea of of a providentially ordered cosmos, which was something that I was very resistant to because it, you know, at first glance, when you come across that, it seems like a, a very Christian concept. And, and so I, I was very averse to the idea, but it's, um, you know, when you step into that, there's a, I forget who, I think it's uh, Habermas, Jürgen Habermas, I believe, who talks about, you know, stepping into the open space between uh, atheism and theism, and that's what I I did. I had been I had been a theist, walked away from that, wanted nothing to do with it. I was at the time a hardcore atheist, and I decided, well, let's let's step into this open space between the two, and see what this looks like, see what this means to me personally in my day to day life. And what I found was that uh, it. From that worldview, I could look back on my life and the events that I had up until that point considered, you know, uh, tragic or uh, you know bad events that had occurred to, in my life, and see them in a completely different light. Not see them as negative things that had happened to me, but as uh, inevitable things that occurred in my life to give me opportunities to grow as the into the person that I was and to prepare me for my life ahead. And that's the paradigm shift. You know, um, we live in an age in the 21st century where everybody wants to be a victim of somebody, of something, you know, the victim of the government, a victim of society, a victim of their education, a victim of the neighborhood they were brought up in, a victim of their parents. And that mentality uh, does not help people. In fact, it's very harmful. It's harmful to people. It's harmful to society as a whole. And this worldview is something entirely different because the Stoics said, no, none of that stuff that happens to you makes you a victim. Those are opportunities for you to grow. They're opportunities for you to build character, which is what the Stoics argued providence was and, and why these things come into our lives. You know, as they um, as they argue, you know, uh, Hercules or Heracles, however you want to pronounce it, would not have been Heracles if it hadn't been for you know the the Hydra, the lion, and the evil men. If he hadn't been forced to confront those things, he wouldn't have been the person that he was. If we look back historically, we would not um, we would not have Socrates it, it, the way that we do if he had if he had not chosen uh, the manner of death that he did. You know, and, and chosen because he thought it was the right thing to do to go along with an unjust sentence of death we wouldn't be reading about Socrates today. So the point of all of that is, is that the, the events that occur in our life give us, give us the challenge to grow. And that's our choice. 
And that's the whole point of stoicism. It's a choice of how we look at this event. We can look at this event as something, you know, bad, horrible, awful, or we can look at this event as something that is um, a part of a teleologically ordered cosmos that was going to happen. And now it's my opportunity to determine how I'm going to face that event because the event is just what it is. It's not, it's not malevolent. It's not benevolent. It's just an event. And the only good or bad that can come from that event is the good or bad that occurs in my character, in my psyche, in my soul. And that good and bad is determined 100% by me, not by the outside event itself or any of the influences that caused that event. You've mentioned a couple times this the idea of, of a worldview in it and it's shifting. And it's um a term that is not talked about in in my view enough. This idea of a worldview and how a worldview may shape how you actually act. Like when it comes to, for example, the cardinal virtues, you know, there's these different virtues, theological virtues. One can know what they are, but does anything come to mind around, you know, what are the wise worldviews to to take, to, to make sense of the world? Um, and, and maybe you talked about one there of not necessarily, you know, of taking responsibility for, you know, whatever, whatever comes your, your way. But is there anything else that comes to mind around just simply, you know, worldviews or perspectives on the world? Yeah, and and you're absolutely correct, Joshua. Uh, most people don't use that that term, and I think they don't use that term because most people want to deny that they really. Well, I shouldn't say deny. They don't even consider the fact that they do hold a worldview. Um, everybody has a worldview. Uh, simply to put it simply, a worldview is a map of the way the world operates, and we all have one. We all have beliefs that you know, allow us to operate in life on a daily basis that allow us to operate with other humans. We make assumptions. We have, you know, people, a lot of people who are agnostic and atheists don't like the word belief, but they are beliefs, you know, because there's, there's no concrete proof. Be, I mean, you know, Descartes famously said, you know, cogito ergo sum, really can't prove anything beyond I know that I exist. Once we step outside of that, to some degree, we're basing things on belief. We're basing things on some assumptions. When I deal with another human being, you know, I'm going to, I believe that because they are a human being, they're going to interact with me in a certain way. And first I'm believing that they are in fact a human being and not a, a robot, not, you know, a, a someone, a character in a Sim City or something like that. So this worldview, each of us operates on a daily basis, everything that we do, um, mostly on an unconscious worldview. The worldview to a large degree comes from our childhood. It comes from um, the society that we were raised in. It comes from maybe some religious indoctrination. Then it's certainly, in, like in the West, if you go to college, you will be fed a worldview, a very consistent worldview, no matter almost what college you go to in the West, unless it happens to be you know maybe a private religious college, you're going to be fed a modern, uh, what would be called a you know, reductionist materialist worldview. And that affects our life. And, and I think where society is lacking today is that we don't really consider the effects that we have from our worldview. And again, you know, going back to Nietzsche, you know, Nietzsche famously in uh, uh, the gay science, you know, the madman running through the city 
um, through the town saying, you know, God is dead, God is dead. And a lot of people look at that as a pronouncement that, that Nietzsche was actually, it was a warning from Nietzsche. Nietzsche was saying, yeah, we've killed God. And he wanted that in the sense that he wanted the Christian hierarchy to be destroyed in the West. But then the warning is, once we bring this hierarchy down, something has to take its place. And I think that's where we are at the beginning of the 21st century. We've taken the Christian hierarchy, the, the, as, which was the dominant worldview in the West that everybody just grew up in. It was, it was the, you know, the, the water that we as fish in that just absorbed. It was just, it was everywhere and we didn't even recognize it. We got rid of that, but we have nothing to replace it, nothing conscious, but we have replaced it. We just don't know that we have. So when we look around at society today and we say, why are things so messed up? It's because of the worldview that we've adopted unconsciously. We just aren't aware of it yet. So that worldview is critical. And the Stoics understood that. You have to have a map of the world before you can create a map for the world. And that's the, the interrelated nature of physics and ethics because the map that you're going to create for the world, which is your ethical behavior, has to be built for the world that you live in. You know, it wouldn't do us any good to build a map for some other um, society. Now, when you asked you know, about worldviews generically, what's interesting is if you look back in other places to find wisdom, when you look back historically, you know, Aldous Huxley calls it the perennial philosophy. The inter- interesting thing in human society is that at the core, almost every society has a wisdom tradition. And the truths, the deeply profound truths of those wisdom traditions are remarkably similar. And, you know, they all consist in there's something more than us. You know, there's some kind of, you know, whether you call it, you know, logos, or I forget what it's, uh, what it's called in, the, in, in the, the Hindu, but, in it, but the, um, the point is, is that there's, they believed that there was some kind of intelligence in the cosmos, that it wasn't just a, a random accident. That's a new idea. That's a very new concept with very real implications for our uh, existence because it changes our worldview. If everything is just a random accident, then it's pretty easy to get to something like nihilism where it's like, what's the point? Why, why are we here? It's just an accident. You know, it's a whole bunch of accidents. It's a long series of accident after accident after accident that, you know, chance combinations of atoms that produced us. And here we are. Uh, just because that's the way it is. That's a different way of looking at life. And it's a different worldview than saying there's some kind of an intelligence behind this. We may not be able to define it exactly. We may not know exactly what it is. You know, we can, uh, the Stoics didn't argue that we have a a book of answers given to us by that intelligence that, you know, pre- prescribed the way that we should live. But instead, they argued that the book is nature, which mm-hmm. is why they, the famous saying, live in agreement with nature. So when you study nature and you study the way that nature operates, then you can bring your life into agreement with that nature and the way nature operates. But wisdom traditions are, you know, I'm not a person who believes that A, Stoicism is for everybody, or B, that Stoicism has all of the answers. I think Stoicism is a wonderful philosophy and it works for me and it works for a lot of people. But it's a mistake to say that, well, it's the it's the only way to well-being. You know, I think it's a mistake. Um, I, I can't tell you that that Zen Buddhism isn't a way to well-being. You know that the uh, 
the uh, Indian religions don't have a way uh, to well-being. I, I can't say that. I haven't traveled those paths. Hmm. It, it's such an important point to just to touch on that that worldview point one more time. It's it's interesting as you were talking about it. I'm I'm thinking about Marcus Aurelius and meditations, and it seems there's not as much about specific virtues. It's him making sense of of life based on his worldviews, based on these views and beliefs, not necessarily specific virtues. But but as you talked about, you mentioned there nihilism, stoicism may not be for everybody. Um, I've heard I've heard it said, um, you know, the best diet is the one that you can follow. <laughs> you know, there's so many different yes. ones. But you know, it, does that same rationale apply to a philosophy of life? Like maybe the best one for you is the one that you think you can uh, follow on a consistent basis, you know, over a long, long period of time, hopefully the rest of your life. Yeah, I, I think so. I, I agree with, uh, Pierre Hedo in this area. Pierre Hedo argued in, uh, I believe it was in his book, philosophy as a way of life that, uh, in Hellenistic times, which is when we had the, you know, the Stoics and the Epicureans and, um, the, and the cynics and the, and the, uh, uh, Platonists all together, the that a person in that society who was looking to live philosophy as a way of life that they typically did not go and attend these schools and learn the theory and then decide hey i want to be a stoic what they did was they they looked at the people who were living that life they looked at the epicureans living in the garden they looked at the stoics and the way that they were engaged with society they looked at the cynics and the and their complete asceticism and living on the street and they and they said i want to live like those people you know which ironically is exactly what zeno did the story of zeno in the book in the bookseller store um he you know reading reading about Socrates from one of Xenophon's scrolls and reads about the life of Socrates and asks the bookseller, where do I find men like this? And he points to this, you know, cynic who's walking by and says, follow that man. He didn't say, where do I learn about theory like this? So I think what you do is you, I think what's important is yes, to find a diet that works for you, find a philosophical path that you say, yeah, I, I resonate with that. And so now I'm going to try to figure out what that entails. Now, the truth may be that you may be just like Zeno, who uh, you may follow a path and say, yeah, not so much. And then go follow another one and say, yeah, okay, I like some, but not so much. And you might find that in the end, you do just like Zeno uh, when he created Stoicism was create kind of a combination of several, which could be you know, your own philosophy. And, and that's fine. It, that, you know, that's in a sense, that's kind of what modern Stoics are doing. Modern Stoics are taking you know, the ethics from Stoicism and saying, yeah, we don't really want anything to do with the, the physics. We don't want, like that idea of a providentially ordered cosmos. We don't like any of the, the spirituality of it. And, you know, logic, okay, yeah, we want to be rational, but we really don't care about the logic. So let's just take the ethics and combine it with a, you know, a modern agnostic atheistic worldview and create a new synthesis. There's no, nothing wrong with that. As long as you're uh, honest with yourself and everybody around you about what you're doing, you're not trying to say, hey, this is the same Stoicism that Zeno and Cleanthes and Chrysippus taught in the ancient Stoic, because that's not the truth. Um, the truth is, is that they are two different things, both of which are very useful. You know, the world is a better place because 
uh, of the spread of any kind of virtue ethics. It's certainly something that's lacking in society. But in the end, yeah, you have to find a path that works for you. And I think, uh, which is why, you know, I'm in support of what the modern Stoics are doing, because I think for the most part, there's a lot of, well, the vast majority of moderns are going to resonate more with an agnostic version of Stoicism, because that's the worldview that they've been fed since childhood. You know, if you if you're under 50 years of old age today, you grew up in a pretty agnostic society in the West, anywhere in the West, even in America. So that's the worldview that you've absorbed. And so when you look at Stoicism and it's agnostic, then you say, oh, yeah, I, that resonates with me versus the perceived, you know, religious um, connotations. You know, I remember I, I read Marcus Aurelius the first time in the 1990s. I know when I was working in Silicon Valley at the time. And I didn't get very deep into it. I threw it back on my bookshelf because of all of the God talk in there. It just, because I didn't understand what he meant. And, you know, you, you brought him up and it's, yeah, you don't see in Marcus a lot of, well, you, you see the, the physics and you see the logic when you understand it and you know that it's already assumed in the arguments that he's making, but he's not overt about it. And, and again, in fairness to Marcus, this is a, this is his diary. You know, one of the mistakes that some people make is they pick up the meditations and they think, okay, this is a Stoic textbook. You know, Marcus was a Stoic teacher. No, he wasn't. He wasn't, as far as we know, even writing for anyone to ever read again. He's writing to himself, um, a concept called hyponomata, which is how you apply the Stoic texts and theory to your own life on a regular basis. And so we we do have to be careful when we read meditations that, you know, if Marcus says something that appears you may be out of sorts with Stoicism, well, maybe that's because Marcus was a little bit, you know, more eclectic than, you know, the average Stoic. Maybe it's because we're misinterpreting what he said. Yeah. There might be someone out there that doesn't necessarily think a a philosophy of life is necessarily needed for them. And you could maybe apply some other terms other than philosophy of life. But I wonder, as, as you talked about, we all have worldviews. It's just often we might be unaware, not necessarily conscious of our particular worldviews. Is that also true for a philosophy of life? Do we all have a philosophy of life, whether we completely are aware of it or not? Uh, yeah, I believe so. And I believe that, you know, the the philosophy that you hold and the worldview are, are kind of the same thing in many ways. It's mm. <clears throat> technically we might call it, you know, a worldview, uh, but it's it's the way you see the world, because again, out of that worldview, out of that map of the world comes a map for the world. So you have decided based upon your view of humanity and your view of the way things operate, that this is the best way for me to behave in that world. I'll give you an example. One of the things when I when I first became a, a law enforcement detective a few, a few years into my law enforcement career, uh, I'll never forget uh, in one of the interviews, you know, I, I was interviewing someone, it's basically, you know, why did you stab the guy? And it's, well, because he got up in my face and disrespected me. Now, I'm sitting in an interview room thinking, initially, that's irrational. It doesn't make any sense. You don't stab people because they get up in your face and 
insult you or disrespect you, right? That's just not the way rational human beings behave. But then as I dealt with more of this, I realized it's perfectly rational for him or her. And by that, I mean, if you're raised in a neighborhood where your street credibility and your respect from the community is everything to you, you know, you you have a worldview and the worldview is, hey, the guys that are on the street that, you know, maybe carry guns that are known as badasses and and don't take any crap from anybody. And if you go up and disrespect them, they're going to shoot you, stab you, whatever. Those are the people that are held in high regard in this community. Then if you absorb that worldview, how are you going to behave when you are confronted? Okay, what was his alternative? Okay, if I don't stab or punch or shoot or whatever this person, now I've just lost credibility to everyone who was standing around and watched me absorb this insult. Now my life in this neighborhood is going to be much more difficult because I just allowed something to happen. So the point is, is that as uh, Socrates famously said, and the Stoics agreed, no one does wrong knowingly or willingly, meaning everything that we do, whether it's stabbing someone, shooting someone, cursing at someone, flipping someone off because they pissed us off on the road, stealing, whatever it might be, we do because we think it is the right thing to do. Not right legally, but it is the good. It is it is bringing something good to me. Therefore, I do it. If we really believed that those things were bad, were going to bring us harm, we wouldn't do them. So, and again, when you when you dissect it, that worldview makes the, the, the behavior makes perfect sense in the worldview of that community. Now, the problem is, is that, yeah, we have to change the community so that that worldview is not accepted as a norm and therefore people behave the way they do. Um, why, why are there people in the world who are willing to strap an explosive vest on themselves and walk into a group of people and detonate that and kill themselves and a whole bunch of other people? Because they hold a particular worldview. And, you know, the, the, I think the frightening thing that we have to come to grips with is that many people in modern society who are agnostics and atheists say, well, yeah, but that's religious people. And so they're brainwashed or whatever the case might be by their religion. They don't realize that they are equally brainwashed. Now, they're not going to put on a vest and go blow themselves up, but they're going to, they may do other very unethical things in business. You know, if they're this, they may be the CEO whose whose product is built by sweatshops in China, and see nothing wrong with that. They may be the CEO or executive of a company that is doing some kind of shady stuff. Well, how's that any different? It's you're still doing something based upon your worldview, which is to get ahead, to get wealthy, whatever the case might be, which is doing harm to others. The lack of an acknowledgement that we have a worldview that affects us is, I think, a, a, a real danger in modern times. Let me, let me follow up and ask you a question, Chris, because I, I love this idea and I love this point. I would, I would categorize this particular point of, as you mentioned, Socrates said, you know, essentially, when people know better, they, they do better. Um, Thomas Aquinas said the same thing of this virtue and vice. It's, it's simply, the vice is simply a lack of, of wisdom. Is that a worldview? Is that one of these questions where you have to simply ask, yes, 
or or know or basically kind of understand this difference between virtue and vice? Well, yeah, it's part of a worldview because you've you've decided that the world is a certain way, humans are a certain way, and therefore there's an appropriate way for me to behave in that world. So, you know, when Marcus opens Meditations 2.1 with a long list of all of the, you know, the mean, the cantankerous, the, you know, the the disrespectful, the ungrateful people that he's going to meet on a daily basis, and then says to himself, but I need to remember that they share a portion of the same divine mind as me. That's a worldview. And that entirely changes Marcus's way that he looks at the people that he's dealing with on a daily basis. You know, if you, if you um, look at another human being as someone who shares a piece of the divine mind as you, are you going to shoot or stab them because they disrespected you? Probably not. You know, the, so, and, and, and I think the thing that we see in meditations that is so beautiful there and is so profoundly attractive to us is we see this connection that Marcus has between nature, the way the world is, and the way that he is trying to mold his character and his life to be in conformity with that. And that is Stoicism, bringing our life into conformity with the way things are and the way humans are. You know, we could, when, when we look at humans, when we otherize other people, you know, when we say, you know, um, well, they're, they're tyrants, they're, they're Nazis, they're Hitler, they're, you know, we, we do this in wartime. You know, you look back at the World War II propaganda and you see the way um, the propaganda on both sides, you know, American propaganda to, uh, to create a mindset in a U.S. soldier that allowed them to take the life of a Japanese or German soldier without thinking that it's really another human being just like me. And that's a part of war. Yeah, I'm not saying it's a good part of war. I'm just saying that that's what happens in wartime is we otherize them because then if we otherize them, we can kill them without really a whole lot of sympathy for them. That's dangerous. And it, Marcus, you know, Marcus lived on a, uh, the front lines of a war. He was in battle all of, most of his time as emperor, he was in, in battle. But yet he saw humans as pieces of the divine mind, fragments of the same divine mind as him. Now, that doesn't mean that um, that people can just do whatever they want to and there are no repercussions and that we can't you know, defend ourselves. You know, there's a, in Diogenes Laertius, there's a famous story of, of a, uh, one of uh, Zeno's servant has uh, stolen something from Zeno. And, you know, being I, maybe why, maybe try smart, whatever, uh, says to Zeno, yes, but I was, uh, it was fate that I stole this from you, trying to use basically Zeno's philosophy against him. And, and Zeno said, yes, and to be beaten for it as well. Yeah, and so the point was, that's the way nature works. You know, it's the way we would train a child. When a child does something wrong, there are some repercussions for it. We can have, you know, an argument about whether corporal punishment is appropriate or not. But if there's no repercussions for bad behavior, then what are you going to get? You're just going to get more bad behavior. So, um, and again, that's a part of you know, the Stoics' belief that human beings, while they're born, uh, the term is tabula rasa, you know, no innate concepts or ideas, 
They also believed that human beings were born with a with an innate uh, predisposition for moral behavior and for the good. And uh, is it Paul Bloom? I think Paul. I think it's, I want to say Paul Bloom, um, psychologist, and I can never remember if it's from Hale, Yale or Harvard. So I mixed it up and said <clears throat> Hale. Um, but the he wrote a, a book probably about a decade ago now called Just Babies, where he he brought a lot of this research to bear that the Stoics were right. The very young infants, long before they uh, have language and long before they really are capable of understanding concepts, have this innate moral inclination. They know when they're being treated wrong. They know it's Mm. it's wrong for another baby to come over and take something from them. They know that there's a uh, an injustice when you know mom walks over and gives you know the 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 brother two cookies and you know gives this boy one cookie. They know there's something wrong with that. They just innately know. So uh, the Stoics were right about that. It's interesting, this idea from Marcus Aurelius in, in, in book two there, you know, we're made to work together. It seems we have a tendency to agree with that, but we want to pick and choose. We don't necessarily apply it across the board to everyone. And then based on mm-hmm. the situation, then we get into some sort of thing of, of whether this, this fits or not, but uh, it, it seems problematic. It, um, and that's why I was kind of talking about the yes or, or the no it's you, you have to, it, it seems take a stance because then the, the problematic thing and biases and all sorts of stuff come into play when you, when you try to apply it, but maybe to transition to this idea of discernment and maybe that's not the best word to use, but I want to talk a little bit about stoicism and actually applying it in daily life. I think about, as you mentioned in the, in the field of law enforcement you know, hectic, everybody, we all kind of live these hectic daily lives that are, that are fast paced in, in stoicism. I'll, I'll put a lot out here and I'd love for you to, to unpack and, and, uh, add whatever, whatever you comes to mind. But this idea of, you know, what's in our control, what's not in our control. Then we have another aspect of, you know, there's virtue and there's vice. There's these things of, uh, indifference and preferred indifference. You know, as we're navigating through life, discerning these things, you know, how do we how do we do that? How do you think about this from a from a real practical standpoint? Well, the the discernment between, you know, what is up to us, um ephemine in the in the Greek and what is not up to us is pretty easy. You know, that's our our thoughts, our beliefs, our judgments are are up to us. Everything beyond that is is not up to us. And, you know, there's a lot of people that try to hedge around that and say, well, there's some things that are, I mean, Irvine does, creates a trichotomy of control, some things that are partially in our control. Well, if it's partially in your control, it's not in your control. It's You're saying, I have some influence on it. And that's true, but it's not up to you. In other words, you are not the the, the person who can bring that event about without some... Um, good fortune, whatever you want to call it, some cooperation by others, but you in and of yourself are not uh, able to bring that about. So the only thing that we have complete control over is our judgments, our, which ultimately form our character. And then we will, and this is one of the, one of, a, I think, a, 
profound truth that's sometimes overlooked in Stoicism, but is necessary is that as Chrysippus pointed out, we do and we will operate in the world and respond to events in the world as the person that we are at that particular moment in time. So we, this idea of free will is not something that the Stoics really had. You know, it's not, I don't get to, when I'm confronted with an event later today, I don't get to say, well, I'm going to behave in this particular situation at this particular time, like Joshua would. We don't get to do that. Yeah, I, 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 I'm going to behave based upon the way my character is at that point in time, which is my my cylinder or my top, the roundness of my cylinder, to use um, Chrysippus's metaphor, the balance of the top. Now, what we can do in that particular instance is we could um, stop our reaction to the event long enough to potentially think about it and you know withhold judgment long enough to maybe consider and change our judgment real time. But then I've changed who I am, right? I changed my character to a small degree in real time. I wasn't behaving as someone else. I was behaving as myself with a slightly modified character because I considered what was happening. Um, you know, I like, I like traffic analogies. So I'm driving down the road and someone cuts me off. And um, I can choose to be angry and upset by that and assume that they have somehow brought some harm to me and honk my horn, maybe, you know, give them the universal sign of discontent out the window. Um, I could even carry this further. I could, I could speed up, get ahead of them, and slam on my brakes to prove to them that, hey, you're not getting ahead of me. You know, we could carry this on until, as, as I see in, in law enforcement world, until eventually this is an exchange of gunfire between two drivers who are so angry at one another and have escalated to this uh, point that there's violence involved. At any point in there, even if, the initial reaction was one of upset, I can say, stop it. Stop it right here, as Epictetus says. Stop this chain of events. Take a look at what you're doing and consider what's going on. Is this a good judgment? And and then change my behavior. I could change it before I get honk the horn. I could change it before I flip them off. I could change them before there's gunfire. I can do, I can change that at any point in time. That's in my control, hundred percent in my control because the idea that this person harmed me in any way was a hundred percent in my control. So ideally in a, as a stoic, we get to the point where when they cut you off, there's no assent to the judgment that this person in some way harmed you. So there's not going to be an emotional reaction because there was no harm for you to react to to begin with. But we we tend to operate in kind of a um, unconscious or uh, automatic mode of behavior. And I forget the exact Epictetus uses a term, and I it escapes me because I, again I'm not a I don't read Greek, but there's a term in the Greek that he uses for people who go through life basically semi unconscious. You know, Socrates called it the unexamined life. Um, Epictetus had a different term, but the point is, is that people that aren't examining their, uh, their judgments in stoicism, that's called prosake. It's attention. And what we see in Marcus is, is his constant, um, reminder to himself to pay attention, pay attention to his judgments, pay attention to his actions, because 
uh, without paying attention, you're going to operate on these um, unconscious behaviors that may come from, you know, for, for many of us, they may come from our childhood. We may not even know why we respond. You know, we catch ourselves going, man, I just, I, I just was behaving just like my dad. And I hate that. You know, why did I do that? Because that's what you've learned. That's what you, that's what you know. And that particular trigger that, that uh, brought about that behavior is there in you. And you're going to have to recode that. You know, you're going to have to re, re uh, shape that piece of, of yourself so that you don't react that way in the same time, in the same way. So a part of the day-to-day life for a Stoic is just paying attention as Marcus did what does what is this event really and then why i because it's outside my control well can i give it up you know am i going to get upset about it am i going to allow it to to bother me because there's no reason to if it's outside of our control once you really accept that now the truth is is that even as a practicing so we're going to fail you know you're going to you're going to stumble and that's when epictetus reminds us just to keep you know getting back up and, you know, don't beat yourself up. Just get back up, learn your lesson, and hopefully don't do it, you know, the next time. I think part of the difficulty in Stoicism, you know, it would be nice if we had uh, a book, of, you know, like the book of Leviticus, which was just a, you know, a book of rules and a book of laws that we could follow. Stoicism wasn't designed that way. Stoicism is designed around, you know, the, the four virtues as we could look at them as principles, as guidelines. But the truth is that how those uh, virtues are applied in our daily life is going to be different. Now, that doesn't mean that it's subjective. It just means that the circumstances for most of us are so complex that when an event occurs, the, you, you have to deal with that based upon those circumstances. Unfortunately, we don't get to decide we don't get to monday morning quarterback and and no more information and go back and change our behavior we behaved we acted based upon what we knew at the time what we knew to be true and so i i think that's where we have to caution ourselves as stoics when we start to judge other people's behavior from the outside because we don't know what was going on now obviously if something is egregious and you can say well there's no rational explanation for why they would should have done that you know these uh, these mass shootings that we see. You know, they, there's no way you can say, well, that depended upon their circumstances. No, it didn't. I mean, they're just you know that, that's uh, that's evil. This that's uh, um, there's no way you can you can uh, even have a discussion about that. But we do have to operate with a, I think, a sense of. Uh, giving our fellow humans a little bit of the benefit of the of the doubt when it comes to, you know, how they be, even our fellow Stoics. I want to stay here for for a bit, if we could, and maybe the remainder of our time, which has flown by, on this this idea of attention, Stoic mindfulness, and I'm I'm curious from a standpoint of just the challenge of applying, and this applies to any philosophy of life, but applying this in daily life as you mentioned an idea of of stopping or you know even even attention you know this ability to focus and and live a conscious and you know deliberate life is what what a challenging thing you you think in in buddhism 
you know, a central thing is that's the whole meditation thing, this idea of some sort of stillness practice as an opportunity to to cultivate that. You know, I, I wonder what the Stoics might think of, you know, a meditation practice or some sort of stillness practice. Do you think they would see that as... Yes, that's a good idea. That is something that, you know, are are they getting at the same same thing with this idea of stoic mindfulness? I guess sorry for the rambled question there, Chris, but any any thoughts? No, I in a sense it's the same thing. It's just a maybe a a different approach. Um and again, because we could you know, when you look at as an example Buddhist mindfulness. If someone is going to be a uh a Buddhist and go at it, you know, uh, let me say, you know, hardcore all out, what are they likely to do? You know, they're going to abandon their life as they know it and go move to a monastery and become a monk. That's the, that's the ultimate, right? The ultimate in Stoicism is the opposite. The ultimate of Stoicism is the person that's living in and engaged with their society and is still paying attention. So, the the mindfulness of um, as an example, you know, Buddhism is more like that of the Epicureans, where I remove myself from these things, and then there's the the mindfulness, the meditative practices that allow me to. And I don't it, it, I don't think the Stoics would have any beef with the meditative practice. It's what is the goal of the meditative practice? Is the goal um, simply your peace of mind? Or is the goal the development of virtue so that you can engage with society? And if your goal is just my own peace of mind, then that's that's not stoicism. That's something different. Because mm. that is not a that is not an end in stoicism. And the end in stoicism is the development of your own character, your virtue, so that you can experience the the well being. And that does require engagement with the events that are occurring in everyday life. But again, I, I would certainly not discourage someone who had a mindfulness practice from doing that. It's just that it is a, a little bit, a little bit different. Attention or prosake is a little bit different than mindfulness in the Buddhist sense. Let me ask you a question around desire. It, it seems like a, a similar thread through both Stoicism and, and Buddhism. Buddha and Epictetus both kind of said something along the lines to paraphrase freedom doesn't come from fulfilling our desires but removal um in buddhism they might add clinging grasping but this idea of what's in our control and what's not in our control it seems like as people apply this speaking for myself you know the idea of of what is not within our control oftentimes there can be a desire for those things to be in our control. You talked about maybe, you know, interviewing someone. You might have a desire for this person to give you accurate information or answer any of your questions. You know, as we go through life, there's so many things that we desire um, to be in our control that are just simply not. How do we work with that? How do, how do we let go of some of these desires? Well, the first step is recognizing that the desire is there because you believe that something is good. Hmm. And the Stokes would argue, no, it's not good. Not good in the sense that it's a true good, a virtue. So 
uh, and and so we can we can move that desire over into into this you know preferred indifferent category, which means we don't have to be a cynic uh, and say, well, that's bad, and I need to I don't want anything to do with it. You know, money is evil, um, and, and and all of that. No, it's just it's just it's a preferred indifferent. It's great if I have it, and if it's offered to me, I'll take it. But I'm it's not a good. It's not what's going to bring me well-being. Only the development of my character is going to bring me well-being. You know, one of the one of my favorite stories is uh, when Epictetus talks about the the dinner party, where you know, he he says, "Sit there at the dinner party, and as the servers come out, if they bring something to you, take your portion." But if you know, and I, on one of my podcasts, I, I use the analogy of chocolate cake. Pretty much everybody likes chocolate cake. And I said, you know, if you're sitting there at a modern day party, and the servers start bringing in chocolate cake, and you look and you go, "Man, look at that cake! That just looks like that's incredible chocolate cake. I've got to have a piece of that cake." And then you're watching as that cake is going around the room, and suddenly it occurs to you, there's more people between you and the server than there are pieces of cake. And now you're anxiously awaiting, hoping that people between you and them don't take the cake. And so what are you doing? You're, you're, you're setting yourself up to de- by desiring something that's completely not in your control. Because either there's going to be a cake on the, platter piece when, on the platter when it gets to you, or there's not. But if we, you know, and Epictetus talks about it, it's reaching out, sending our desire out to that thing and wanting it before it's given to us. And... This is again goes back to the idea of a providentially ordered cosmos, the acceptance that that just wasn't meant for me. Yeah, you know, this okay. Uh, that doesn't mean I shouldn't go after it again potentially, but you know, it wasn't meant for me. This idea that we can have anything we want is you know it's a it's a modern and it's a Western idea. You can be anything you want to be, and you can have anything you want if you just put put your mind to it. Those those are untruths. Now, the truth is, is that we have potential, all of us have potential far beyond what we believe that we have, but we can't have everything that we want. And you may do everything right. You may get a college education and have a great job and have married the perfect person, um, done everything that you were told to do, and a tyrant takes over the country and you're put into a concentration camp. The point is, is that you have no idea what's going to happen. So the event outside, we're, we're, we're better off developing our character because our character goes with us wherever we go, which is why the Stoics could argue that someone could be experiencing happiness while imprisoned or even being tortured on a rack. You know, we, mm-hmm. we look at that and we go, how could that possibly be? How could you? Well, because they, they know that their virtue is within them. In the same way that Socrates, when he drank the hemlock, you know, is the people around him said, "Hey, you don't have to do this. We can pay the, we can pay off the jailer. We can bribe the jailer. We can get you out of here in the in the dark of night." And Socrates knew, said, "No, that that's not the right thing to do." And his claim that he knew, you know, he knew the right thing because his his uh, daimon didn't warn him to do something different, or that he was doing anything wrong. Well, I appreciate that, Chris. Our our time has flown by. Let me throw just a couple more questions at you. I want to be respectful of your time. And we've talked about throughout this conversation a little bit about worldviews and views and beliefs or whatever you might want to call that. And 
I'm curious, you know, how do you cultivate a, you know, a, a view and, and belief? You talked about the beginning of, of book two and, and Marcus Aurelius. There's in book six, there's this um, quote from Marcus Aurelius about meditate often on the interconnectedness, you know, this mutual independence or interdependence, excuse me, of all things in, in the universe. I've often wondered, like, how do you do that? And obviously he's writing to himself, so he's not necessarily advising mm -hmm. others. But how do we do that? How do we experience that interdependence? Any any thoughts? Well, yeah, you have to you have to just try to be conscious that it you know, exists. You know, I, in one of my, uh, I'm trying to remember where it was. It was a Q and A session I was involved in somewhere, and someone asked me, "How do you convince someone?" that the the cosmos is providentially ordered. And I said, you don't. You can't. Yeah. You know, that, that's a decision that they're going to come to on their own. And, you know, my argument is, um, whether it's right or wrong, you, you can't prove it. I mean, we can't prove, we can't even come close to proving that the world is mechanistic and that it was, you know, that we are here just by chance combination of of atoms. In fact, mathematically, that is on the level of probability of impossibility. So, but you know what I can do? I can try it on. I can, and I can say, well, what if the world is providentially ordered? What if that was meant to happen? What could that mean to me, to my life, if I accepted that as something that was meant to be and that there was something for me to learn from this particular event? And in the same way of the interconnectedness, what if everything is really interconnected the way that Marcus said, and, and quite frankly, the way that quantum science is now teaching us is, in fact, true? What if that, what would it look like if I believed that? Well, it's it looks like Meditations 2.1. You know, it looks like, well, I, I'm somehow interconnected and related to all of these people and and everything that I do has a ripple effect, not just with my family, but with society and then with the world at large. And it's taking ownership of that, taking ownership that your actions have real consequences in the world and that your actions are based upon your, uh, your worldview and the way in your beliefs, the beliefs that you hold about what is good. And so then, you know, is it is it worth it to change that and to try to modify that so that I can uh, live a different life? You know, maybe a life that is not so wound up with the stresses of trying to achieve externals. And yeah, if something you know good comes about, well, great. But if it doesn't, well, great. You know, that's that is um, just the way just the way the world works. You know. Uh, and it doesn't, and this is, you know, one of the mistakes I think some people, uh, assume, well, you know, that breeds a form of quietism where people just give up. No, it didn't. It, it certainly didn't for Marcus Aurelius. Marcus Aurelius didn't say, well, you know what? I'm just going to sit here in Rome and, you know, hopefully the Germanic tribes don't make it this far. And, you know, because I don't want to have to go out there and engage with them because, uh, I'm, I'm just too blissful here in, you know, in Rome. Uh, Cato certainly didn't do that. 
you know, when he, uh, he, he was not happy that Caesar was going to take control of the Republic and turn it into a, an empire and, uh, and, and fought. So it, it doesn't breed quietism. It doesn't, it's not an excuse to sit back and do nothing. And that is one of the things that I love about Stoicism is that um, in one of my podcasts, I talk about, you know, getting out of the Epicurean garden, getting into the cosmopolis. Stoicism is about creating um, people who behave appropriately so that they can engage in society. And if you, if you think about it, you know, how many Marcuses would it take in our modern world to, to turn things around for everybody on the globe? It wouldn't take very many. Mm-hmm. You know, it would take a handful of true world leaders who were like Marcus Aurelius to, to turn everything around and to, and to make the world that we live in in an entirely different place. But we don't have people like that today. Uh, we don't have people like that today because to a large degree, um, you know, we have ascribed to an entirely different worldview. And we say that you know, that old worldview is wrong, it's mistaken, uh, but we say that based upon a different set of assumptions, which are equally unprovable, but which we've been trained are you know, scientific facts or whatever the case might be when, in fact, they are not. So um, Stoicism, while it is an inner game, meaning the only thing that we have to control over is what is, is our internal character, what is inside of us, everything outside is outside of our control. At the same time, Stoicism prepares us to do everything appropriate in external events. So it's kind of a conundrum there. You, know, you <laughs> focus on the internal so that you can behave appropriately toward the external. Well, I, I love it. This has been been great, Chris. Where do you point people that are interested in, in learning more about you and, and connecting with some of your work in the world? Well, my blog is traditionalstoicism.com. The podcast is Stoicism on Fire. And I would argue that if somebody is interested in learning you know, more about Stoicism, the Stoic Essential Studies course at the College of Stoic Philosophers is a great place to start. It's a mentored program. It's four months long. It will give you the basics that you'll need in terms of terminology so that you can either go on to the Marcus Aurelius program, which is a year-long, very intense program, or just study on your own. You, you learn concepts like... Um, eudaimonia and, and erite and oikiosis, all of which you're going to come across in more um, academic readings of Stoicism, which is ultimately, if you if you want to understand Stoicism, you're going to have to, to some degree, turn to some um, some more academic reading, because it's it is a technical philosophy, and we live in a completely different culture. So understanding that <clears throat> requires an expert, you know, like an A.A. Long or. A, a, uh, Brad Inwood, David Sedley, all those guys, you know, they've done a brilliant job of defining what Stoicism is, uh, whether we as moderns want to agree with that and apply it to our lives is up to us, but but that's the understanding. And um, the college of, it's collegeofstoicphilosophers.org, a great program, it's pretty inexpensive, and you'll get, a, like I said, you'll get a wonderful education there just in, in a four-month period of time. And I would recommend it. That was my start. I recommend it for anybody. Well, great. Well, thank you so much for that, Chris Fisher. I really appreciate you coming on In Search of Wisdom. Thank you, Joshua. You have a wonderful day. 
Thank you so much for listening. You can get the show notes and links to resources mentioned at perennialleader.com slash podcast. If you're interested in learning more, subscribe to The Path. It's our free weekly newsletter. These are short reflections on wisdom for everyday life right to your inbox. And lastly, I urge you to put what you heard into practice. Until next time, be wise and be well.